We've ended up focusing on forced labour and child labour in the supply chains of food. That mostly means we focus on fish, cocoa and sugar. Those three things in that order are the most likely to have forced labour in their supply chains. Pretty much everyone in New Zealand buys at least one of those three things. This slavery, this child labour is being done for us. This is Down to Earth Conversations, where we hear from ordinary people who are helping to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Kia ora. welcome to another episode of Down to Earth Conversations with me, your host, Andy Dixon. Today we hear from Heather Roberts of Just Kai. Heather shares with me her prolonged journey of ill health and how that impacted life for her for many years. We hear about how it rapidly arrived and then rapidly improved years later, like the flicking of a switch. She shares about things that got her through that time, including relationships and connection, And we also hear about how her illness actually led to the work she's now doing with Just Kai, helping consumers to buy food products free from child labour or forced labour. It's a really remarkable story from a remarkable human being. This is episode 71 of Down to Earth Conversations. Here's Heather Roberts. It's a pleasure to have Heather Roberts on the podcast today. Kia ora, Heather. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Nor here, Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're from? So, yeah, my name's Heather Roberts, as you say. I'm um, married to Martin. We've been married about 20 years. And most of that time, we've also lived with a friend from university called Sarah. Um, I'm a lifelong follower of Jesus. Um, I've lived most of my life in Auckland and in Avondale for the last 18 years. And I have a very local life in Avondale. I don't go out much beyond this area, but it's really neat to live in a local area and swim at the local beach and be part of a local church and all of that. I really enjoy living locally. Yeah, which is probably quite a unique experience up in Auckland because it's so vast that it's easy to get caught up in the bigness of Auckland. It is. And I think some people think it's quite boring also to just be in one place, but it's actually, I found really rich to be in one place and yeah. really get to know local people and really know the area. Yeah, awesome. My village. So we're going to talk a bit about um, Just Kai, which is an organisation that you you head up. But before we get to that, uh, some of, of that story comes out of your own fairly intense um, health journey. Can you tell us a little bit about that health journey? You know, where were you when you became unwell and how did life change for you? So in 2003, I was studying in the US. I was in the very early stages of PhD in chemistry. And one afternoon I was teaching in the undergraduate lab and I just didn't feel like I could stand up properly. And so I asked if I could leave and they said, no, we're short-staffed. And I'm like, I'm seriously going to fall over. And so I just walked out which was fairly out of character, yeah. <laughs> um, and led to a whole flurry of emails. But I think they eventually realised I was serious when I literally never came back. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> I spent the next two months still staying in Pittsburgh where I was living. Um, and over that time, I just got weaker and weaker. Um, and initially, they thought I had glandular fever, um, which later they think probably wasn't the case. Um but I was just, I remember lying in bed and realising that 
today it was really hard to move my feet under the covers and I landed in hospital at one point because I was really dehydrated because I just couldn't lift my head up properly to drink. And wow, I that's pretty I, serious. It's really serious. I mostly assumed that I was going to die because that's wow. kind of what happens when you get weaker and weaker. Um, and eventually, after two months, my now husband um, he came across from Canada to where I was, and when my mum went to a conference in New York, and then came across to Pittsburgh as well, and the two of them picked up my house and at that stage we were still thinking it was glandular fever I was still expecting to come back by the end of the year um Martin and I thought we'd probably get married in New Zealand in December and then return in the new year um but that didn't happen um we did get married in December but I was carried into the ceremony on a sedan chair that we hired from a prop hire company um wow. which was which was actually really neat and my mum works a lot with refugees and a lot of the refugees were like so traditional and I was so <laughs> used to, I'd never heard of anyone oh, that's doing awesome. but these women from like Afghanistan and Iran were really impressed by what a traditional wedding we were having um, oh that's fantastic yeah and after that I was eventually diagnosed in New Zealand with chronic fatigue syndrome um, post probably actually I had a flu cold type virus about a week before I got ill and it was probably a reaction to that um, from my body suddenly just overcompensating. And yeah, I settled in after a while to being up out of bed for about four hours a day, using a walker around the house, using a wheelchair when I went out, going out maybe once every six weeks or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, so, so from being fully functioning academic mm. to having to be carried places. Yeah. That. I mean, it was huge. And it was really difficult from kind of a self-worth point of view. I remember oh, I bet. back in New Zealand, I wanted, I realised that my high school principal, who I'd been quite close to, was living not that far away. And I really wanted to get in touch with her. But I was also really uncertain because I was like, I was ducks of my school. I was, you know, had all this potential. Last time I talked to her, I'd been about to go off to do my studies overseas. And essentially, which would be really disappointed in me that I'm now just lying on the sofa, um, which she totally wasn't. And it was actually really good to catch up with her the time I did that. Um, and a lot of that was in my head. But I definitely felt quite ashamed that a lot of effort had been put into kind of cultivating all this potential that I had. And now I just lie around and do nothing. And that took a lot of adjustment. But over time, I accepted the situation a lot more and started to find good stuff in it. But it was always a bit up and down and emotionally challenging. But it, it did become actually a, a perfectly good life over time. So, I mean, you talk about over time. How, how long are we talking here? So I was, I was seriously ill like that for about 16 years, just shy of 16 years. Um, from when I was, I think I was 26 or 27 when I got ill, so my entire 30s um, and into my early 40s. Wow. Um, and, yeah, that, that has meant we haven't been able to have children. Yeah. Um, I wasn't well enough, and I'd always assumed I'd have a large family. Um, I have very close friends who have 11 children, and I, I'm about six years older than their eldest, and... I've always been kind of part of their family and, you know, looking after the little kids. And I just assumed that would be part of my life and it hasn't been. 
And even now, I don't think that anyone would adopt, let us adopt children, for example. My health's just not that strong still. Right. Um, which, which I guess you think of the health thing on its own, and that's quite a lot to deal with. And But then there's all these other ramifications for what that means for the rest of life, which you, th- mm. you then also have to grieve and process and work through. Yes. That sounds really yeah. hard. So, like, what what got you through that? Like, how did you – you said you actually had a fairly satisfying life. You know, mm. how? I mean, I've got a fantastic husband, and right from the very beginning he's been very clear that this is our problem. He's also been very clear that the money that he earns is our money. Because um, initially I was kind of a bit like, well, you're doing all this work and I'm lying around doing nothing. What right do I have to have opinions? But he's he's been very clear on all of this is for both of us. And that's been huge. Um, I mean, a lot of marriages break up mm, from this kind of situation. And our marriage started in this situation. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure who of us kind of started thinking this way, but about two years in, we kind of, initially we were like, well, I'll be better in six months. That's what they originally said. And then, you know, it's very unusual for this kind of situation to last longer than two years. And so I was kind of like, well, you know, maybe a year, maybe two years. And then after I got past two years, it's like, well, apparently I'm the exception (laughs) and who knows what's going to happen now. But we quite consciously around that time decided to really focus on making a good life. A lot of people with serious illnesses give all of the very small amount of energy they've got to trying to find a cure. And I'm I'm a scientist and I've worked in the pharmaceutical industry and I basically trust the medical system that if there is a known solution, it will become known. And... You know, the very first, at the very beginning it won't be, but soon enough I'll hear about it. Um, and in the meantime, it's just not worth trying things. So I've tried a few things that have had a reasonable amount of evidence behind them. There's one supplement I took for many years that gave me an extra hour out of out of bed each day. That took me from three hours to four hours. Um, but mostly it, we've really focused on quality of life. Um, and... Martin decided fairly early on that I wouldn't have any have-tos around the house um, and that he would carry all of that. He's worked 30 hours a week, which has really helped. and His work has been amazing. Awesome. Um, but that meant that with the time that I had, I could do things that I enjoyed. I've, I've become pretty good at hand-sewing over the years, and I really enjoy making beautiful things. Um, I've My kind of chemistry experience has turned into into being a recipe developer nice. um, and being interested in kind of fermented foods and that kind of thing that's still carrying on. I'm making some vegan fermented cheese at the moment. Um, and also kind of looking for meaningful work. So I found most of the time when I was really ill, I had two or three women that I was corresponding with by email who had difficult things going on in their lives of various kinds. And so kind of a focus would be to be kind of giving out to those people. I tried to write every quarter for the national, um, there's like a magazine for the Support Society for Chronic Fatigue People who are called ANSMEs. And I used to try and write something for them each each quarter, which would take about a month to do that each time. So it was kind of a big focus. And also we had really good support from our church. And in terms of Martin being able to have a good quality of life, he's also really early on, a friend who's got kids with very significant disabilities 
um, really strongly encouraged us that he should take a complete break away from home once every three months and do something that fed him. Yeah. And so he's done that. And then my church and also the street where I live, various ladies have come in to help me each morning and evening while he's been away. But that's really helped him have the energy to keep on doing something. I mean, I needed to keep a really strict routine. Martin is not a routines person. So, you know, to have a, a time when he didn't need to go to bed when I needed to go to bed and he didn't need to have meals right on time, otherwise I'd just not cope and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's really important for him. Sounds like you guys managed to find a really good balance on how to, mm. ma- how to make it not just workable, but actually benefit you both. Yeah. Which is great, you know, that, um, I mean, the, the ideal marriage should be like that, you know. Mm. Um, and so often, like you say, so often this would kill a marriage. So it's great mm. to hear that this has been something that, you know, yours has flourished within this. Yeah. And I think it's been actually really good for us. Like, I was really emotionally, I'm still pretty emotionally fragile, but I was really emotionally fragile during that time. And it's meant we've had to be really honest with each other. We just can't have things festering and things like that. And mm. it's, I think it's actually made us a really strong team. Yeah. So you, you said... Um, like people from your church coming in and stuff, I imagine that you weren't actually attending a church for a great deal of that period. So what did that look like? So when we first got married, um, we were members of different churches and we were kind of like, well, let's just stick with that until I'm better and then we'll find something together. And then again, I come to the sort of two-year period when we realised it wasn't happening. Martin went to all of the churches that were within a five-minute drive of our house and had wheelchair access um, to try and find something that would work. And he found one that um, didn't believe in the Trinity, and that was important to us. He found one where no one talked to him. He found one that worshipped in Samoan, and he found one that worshipped in English and seemed basically okay. And that's the church we're still part of. And I went in in person the day we became members and I also went to the service one time when Martin was preaching and I went to two funerals and other than that um, over those 16 years that's that's the only times I attended that church but we tried to have people around for meals so that I could meet people a lot of people also specifically came around because they wanted to to meet this mysterious wife Martin apparently had yeah um, we you know we got a new pastor and his wife came around to see me fairly early on and we actually ended up becoming quite good friends and she came around monthly for years and yeah they took on the challenge of having someone who couldn't come and make me part of the the church and we also had a home group at our house um a lunchtime home group on a Saturday so there was a few people from that who I got to know very well. That's great to hear because you know so often you know churches would like to think that that's what they would be like but mm. often you just, it's so easy to get caught up in planning programs and services and things that sometimes churches aren't like that. Um, no, I, so I, I'm so grateful. Yeah, it's it's brilliant um, to hear that that actually, yeah. you know, what what is a relatively simple practice of, you know, visiting people mm. actually has made a huge difference for you. Yeah. And it's not that simple. Like it's taken little bits of time from lots and lots of people and, and awareness and so on. I mean, people bring communion weekly, sorry, monthly as well. And yeah, different ladies from the church coming and helping out. It's, it's not, it's not small. And I'm, I am, yeah, glad that it happened. I didn't take it for granted. Yeah. Nice. 
you seem much more well at the moment. Um, mm. So how did that transition happen from from what you were like? You said like only a few hours out of bed a day um, mm. through to what things are like for you now. Yeah, so I, I became ill very suddenly and I got well very suddenly. I think there's some switch in my head that has made me ill and has made me better and science doesn't know what that is. But this kind of ties in a bit with the Just Kai story that I was, when I was really ill, I was listening to BBC World Service for hours and hours every day. And that kind of led to hearing various things about stuff in the world. One of them was in 2006, there was a documentary about child labour in the cocoa industry. And they were saying that about 20% of the cocoa-growing workforce is children, and they're working because their families are just really poor, and they can't afford to feed them if they don't have the kids working, but the kids can't go to school. It's bad for their bodies, all that kind of thing, heavy loads, sharp knives. And I was quite appalled to hear that and was like, you know, we can't have that going on for our treats, and that kind of led to us basically that week changing how we bought our cocoa. And this does relate to the illness story. It's kind of the background. Um, And then um, some years later, I think in 2016, my mum was hearing that Stuff had put out some material on um, slave labour in the tuna industry, Um, men being tricked onto boats, working without pay, um, terrible, terrible working conditions. And she wanted me to look into um, what fish was okay to buy, which I sat on for ages. But then... um, I did look into it. I'd already been accumulating information on on cocoa products that were child labour free. At the time we started, there was very little, but by that time there was, I think it was 2014, I started maintaining a list where there was quite a lot of stuff. And I started contacting fish companies and asking them what do they know about the supply chain of their fish and got some really good answers and started to accumulate information about that as well. Then we were praying about how can we share this information? People need to know about this. And we heard that Tear Fund was having a social justice-themed conference in 2018, the Justice Conference, with um, space where charities could share information. And we got in touch and we were like, we're just people, we're not a charity, but can we share this information? Can we have a table? And they were like, sure, you need a name um, and a website, and then you can do that. So my friend Anna came up with the name Just Kai, and Martin's a computer programmer, and he put together the website. And it was never... I thought that I would go to that, but a couple of our friends and Martin were going to go to that um, and man a stall and tell people about it. But then about a month beforehand, um, Martin started to feel quite strongly that I was going to go to it and he should be praying for that. And we later heard that my sister-in-law and also um, one of the ladies from our church had been praying about that. At that time, felt it was very important right then. And... About a week beforehand, I started to think that I'd be going. Like at first, I, I, Martin didn't even tell me a month beforehand, which I think was very sensible because I'd had my hopes up far too many times and yeah. I didn't want that. It's just too disappointing because my life, my life worked well because I was living in it and not kind of expecting it to change. Yeah, right. Um, and if I was expecting change, it's just it was just too hard. Um, but about a week beforehand, I started to think that maybe I would, be, I would be going. I won a ticket to the conference through something that I naively hadn't actually realised was a competition on Facebook. I just put a comment on something, but comments were entries to a competition um, and other things like that. And 
So on the Friday morning, it was Friday evening and all day Saturday, on the Friday morning, I got in touch with my, one of my friends and asked if she could give me a lift. And then on the Friday afternoon, I was like, actually, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not, nothing's changed. I'm not well enough. And I was so disappointed. It was just horrible. And then Martin came home and he'd gotten a bunch of little details wrong and what I'd been telling people. And I was like, grump, 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 grump. Um, and, <laughs> and then the next morning I woke up and just lying in bed, I I was moving more easily. Um, something had changed. And so Martin was like, you need to just get out of bed, walk around the room, see how you're doing. And I did. And I'm like, it's just different. And so we kind of we had 15 minutes to decide if I was going or not um, because, you know, he needed to get there. And so we just threw, I was really sensitive to the cold and to noise and to light and to lots of things. So we put like, blankets and hot water bottles and earmuffs and everything yeah. you think of in the car and headed in and I was there all day I was there from eight in the morning to late at night I had a wow. couple of naps I was using the wheelchair but it was bright it was loud um because I was in the wheelchair and people were mostly standing I was really having to yell at people and and I just did it and it was okay and we were really busy all day but every so often you know, the public would go away and there'd be no one and we'd just be like, what, what's happened? Yeah, <laughs> um, wow. Of course, I need time to process. And I also learned that, yes, Martin did get some of the details wrong, but it's actually a lot better than I am at engaging people. So, you know. Oh, well, that's, like you say, that's fairly dramatic beginning mm. to your illness and a fairly dramatic kind of change at the end. Is yes. Does it, it mean that you're fully well now? or No. So initially we just assumed that I was. Because um, it was such a big change, and and it took me a while to kind of realise that it wasn't, and a while to kind of accept that. Um, partly because when you hear stories of God healing people, I've I've never heard a story of God healing someone and them not being a hundred percent. But that seems to be what's happened. So I'm now out of bed about seven hours a day, and if I push that too much, I get very ill very quickly. But when I'm up and about, I'm fine. I bike four or five kilometres to Blockhouse Bay Beach most weeks and swim a kilometre in the wow. sea. And I, yeah, my bike is my main transport. I'm probably the fittest and strongest I've been in my whole life, more so than I was like when I was a teenager. But I've got really bad stamina. And if I push things too far, yeah. I, I just get ill. Yeah. That must be really freeing to have that ability to do the biking to do the swimming compared yeah. compared to what it had been like yes and it's I mean it's neat um I'm quite a focused person so I'm often just kind of just going through my life doing the things I have to do but every so often I'm just like my goodness I mean I've always loved swimming and we used to swim once a year in the summer um we we adapted they bought various parts and kind of jury-rigged a beach wheelchair because you can't put a normal wheelchair across the sand. It doesn't work. Um, but it was this massive, massive, you know, logistical challenge and also um, big energy challenge. I'd need to rest up well beforehand and well afterwards to manage it. And now I do that weekly, fortnightly, right, right through the year. Wow. Um, depending on the times. And that's really neat. But it's also... I feel like I've become even more difficult for other people to make sense of. Because <laughs> yeah, um, right. like I show up at my church on my bike every week and because and I am careful of myself, 
people very rarely see me falling apart when I push things too much. But then people are like, well, there's this evening meeting. And I'm like, well, I don't do evenings. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because I'm too sick. And they're like, but you showed up on your bicycle. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> oh, crazy. Um, mm. I think one of the things I love about the Just Kai story is that it actually began while you were still very unwell. You know, mm. it's not like you were unwell and then suddenly you got this new kind of burst of energy and then you felt like you could do something. You know, it's mm. it's something that happened in the situation you found yourself in um, with the resources that you had and and even the fact that you were listening to the BBC and mm. becoming passionate about some things, you know, is is because of the situation you were in. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what... What was it particularly, I mean, you must have heard a whole bunch of things while you were listening to things. Um, what was it particularly about this um, child labour stuff that really gripped you? I don't know. Um, it just, it just seemed so wrong and and for something so unimportant, in a sense. Like, I mean, I love chocolate, but it's, it's not worth hurting people like that for it, you know? Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, it just it just seemed really wrong. We've also because we haven't been able to have children, we've tried all the time to have, you know, to be donating to something that helps kids or making meals for when they have new babies or just trying to be part of the village. And so I think things that relate to children, yeah, particularly are noticeable to me. Um, I guess that's been part of how we've dealt with not having children. But it, you know, I'm also conscious that it's a lot of work having little kids and. You know, it's nice to feel helping out a bit. Yeah. But I guess also with all those years of listening to the BBC, I used to keep a little tally in my head um, of places where I'd be dead. And it kind of sounds morbid, and I've never quite <laughs> yeah. going to talk about this in a way that kind of works <laughs> yeah. for people. It's not it's not actually that negative, but it's, it's just most of the world is really resource poor. And so having an adult who can't contribute, like I was contributing in kind of supporting people kind of ways, but who can't contribute to the things that actually are the basics that keep people alive. In a lot of places, you just can't carry someone like that. I remember listening to a story about in the Republic, Democratic, Democratic Republic of Congo of people who were in an area where there was militias very active. And basically everyone was malnourished because they had a crop, I think it was cassava, that would grow, and Congo has amazingly good soils and a really good climate, and I think it was cassava that would grow in like two months and you get a crop, but it's not a balanced diet just eating cassava, but they couldn't grow anything else because they just had no confidence that they'd have a full year before someone would come and burn their village, and, wow. and when that happened, you needed to leave immediately, and so you know, you can carry children, but you couldn't really carry me when you're running away from the militia. Yeah. And, and you know, some people were having to leave their elderly behind because they just couldn't carry them, wow. and, um, which is just horrendous. And I'm sure they were, were leaving sick people behind as well. And, you know, in an environment like that, I just wouldn't have been alive. And I was also very struck by a story of an Indian woman who was in North India somewhere, and she'd had two daughters, and her, her husband died, you know, like of old age, like after the, after the girls were growing up. 
but both of the girls had married and they were now living, each of them, in two different villages, each about a day's walk away. And um, each of the girls would come back once a month to visit their mum, who was now widowed. But they they had responsibilities where they were in their husband's family, you know, growing food for their husband's family so that his parents could stay alive. And this woman, she'd gotten to the point when the reporter was talking to her, she couldn't maintain her food garden anymore. She was just too old. And so each girl would come once a month and do what they could. Um, but before the reporter had filed the story, the mum had starved. Um, oh, and she wow. fundamentally died of having daughters. because, and, it wasn't, and her daughters were clearly good, caring, faithful people, but they couldn't keep both sets of families alive. And the culture was very clear who you choose. And again, in a situation like that, you know, I couldn't have been maintaining my vegetable garden and all of that. And so... I just became really conscious of of what inequality was meaning, you know, people actually having relatives dying in a way that would be premature for us just because there wasn't enough resources to go around. And I guess that's kind of the background to kind of, I, I want a world where everyone has opportunities and not everyone will do the same things with those opportunities, but with our whole lives we've tried really hard to try and live in ways that give more equal opportunities. And that kind of, and we're mostly talking about just Kai here, but that's really fed into a concern about climate change because yep. um, we don't want our lives to be many other people's. You know, sea level rise, your land all turns to salt and then you can't grow food and then you die. You know, it's yeah. just, um, it, it feels really visceral to me. Yeah. You said when you started Just Kai, or kind of organically started, with the stuff around cocoa and then also um, your mum talking about the seafood stuff. What does Just Kai look like now? So we've ended up focusing on um, forced labour and child labour and the supply chains of food. And that mostly means we focus on fish, cocoa and sugar. So those three things in that order are the most likely to have forced labour in their supply chain. So fish, fish is by far the worst, um, and then cocoa, um, and then sugar, which initially I didn't really know anything about, but when I learned about those three things, I'm kind of like, well, I've got information about fish and cocoa, let's start looking about sugar to kind of round that out. And, yeah, so the, the, there's a thing called the Global Slavery Index that kind of looks at where people are enslaved but also what they're doing. And the, the five things that are at highest risk are firstly electronics and then clothing and then fish, cocoa, and sugar. And electronics at that stage, it was looking just too difficult. The supply chains are horrendously complicated, although there's actually a group called Know the Chain that are now doing really good work in electronics. And then clothing, um, Tear Fund is doing really well. And so we're kind of doing fish, cocoa and sugar. And then we've since branched out a little bit into a few other high-risk areas, like child labour is a big issue in tea, um, also a big issue in cashew nuts um, and hazelnuts. Right. So we've started to look at if the Global Slavery Index is looking at what is commonly bought that is a high risk, where we started to branch out a bit more into things that are very high risk but not so high value. So like, you know, fish is a very big economic thing, whereas cashew nuts is just a little thing, but then cashew nuts are really high risk. So we've, we've started to do a few of those things as well more recently. Yeah. Tell us about the, um, the seafood, like how, how is forced labour work in the seafood industry? 
So seafood is risky at all stages of its supply chain. So cocoa, it's basically an issue on farms, and it's basically mostly child labour, some forced labour on farms. Fish, um, if you take something like prawns, for example, prawns will be fed. Prawns are usually farmed, um, the ones we buy, and the at the fish farm they will feed the prawns on ground-up fish meal. So there's forced labour in the in the catching of that fish, in the factories where the grinding up is done, on the farms where the prawns are grown, um, also where the prawns are kind of shucked. If you you know you get the ones with the shells off, which is much more convenient, that's that's again often done with forced labour. So kind of right the way through the supply chain, there are issues, and it's particularly bad in Southeast Asia and in China, but it's everywhere in. I think it was 2018, there was a case in the courts in New Zealand where there'd been a Korean-flagged fishing vessel with an Indonesian crew fishing in New Zealand waters, which is very typical of fishing industries. They have many different nations involved in just one boat. But um, the crew, when they got, they, they, they made land, they, they came to port in Christchurch and I don't know exactly what happened, but it, it came out what had been going on in that vessel, and that was then brought to court, and the company was convicted of not paying any wages at all for two years um, in New Zealand waters, and there were allegations on that boat of rape which were not taken to the court, but are very likely to be true. That's incredibly common in the fishing industry. And people just get caught up in it. Um, sometimes they're tricked. When I speak at churches, sometimes I show a video of a man called Ong Yetung, who's from Myanmar, and he was um, a rice farmer, and his family weren't really making enough, because it's kind of a subsistence farm where they kind of sell a bit of the extra to buy some other stuff, but mostly they're eating their own rice, and it wasn't working. Um, they weren't getting enough money to get by, and someone told him that in Thailand there's jobs in the construction industry. And so he went with a trusted person that he knew to Thailand, um, where that person handed him over to other people and he was put on a fishing boat. Um, and he was at sea a couple of years um, before he was able to get away. And it's really easy to enslave people at sea because, you know, the police aren't just there. You yeah. can't just walk off. Yeah, where are they going to go? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's not always bad, but if, if things go bad on a fishing vessel, there's just nothing you can do until it gets into port. And then... With fish that's caught kind of well out to sea, like tuna is often caught in deep waters a long way away from land, it's quite common to have the fishing vessels will stay there basically until the boats need maintenance. So they might be there for four years in that one place. And then other fishing vessels, so sorry, other vessels that are not fishing vessels come backwards and forwards and they will take the fish off, drop off supplies. And a number of brands now are refusing to buy fish caught that way, which is good. Because, you know, if the vessel comes back every few months to land, every few months you've got a chance to get away. But if it doesn't come back for four years, then you're just stuck. Thinking of my own experience or my own knowledge about modern-day slavery, when I hear modern-day slavery, the first thing that comes to mind is, like, sex trafficking. Mm. But this sounds like it's quite a massive component of, of modern-day slavery. It is. And, the, yeah, as you say, the sex trafficking is much higher awareness. 
the International Labour Organization estimates there's about 50 million people in slavery today, which is just insane. Yeah. Um, it's a huge number of people. And about 6 million of those are in forced labour for the sex industry. But there's another about 15 million who are in forced labour for other things. Um, a lot of them are in domestic service. So you kind of hear about that in the Middle East sometimes of people being maids essentially, um, but against their will. And I've kind of derived a number because it's not produced as such, but looking at the different numbers of different things people are doing, there's about 8 million people who are making, who are doing something to do with the production of goods for sale. So they'll be mining minerals or they'll be on a fishing boat working in a factory. And, and there's also about 160 million children in child labour. And child labour is not, you know, doing a paper run after school. It's, it's working instead of going to school and it's working um, in ways that are harmful for your development. And most of them, about 75% of them, are in ag agriculture. And again, you know, some of that's, you know, just keeping their families alive, but some of it is also, you know, stuff for sale that comes through to us, like our coffee, our chocolate. Um, and I, I think we need to care about those people because they are our neighbours. But I also think um, with the sex industry, it's, I mean, it's not like no one from New Zealand goes over to Thailand to buy sex in a Thai brothel. You know, it's not, it's not, not an issue that we are touched by, but I feel like this is an issue we're really touched by because I've, I haven't yet met anyone who doesn't buy fish or cocoa or sugar. I've met plenty of people who like don't eat chocolate or don't eat fish or whatever, but pretty much everyone in New Zealand buys at least one of those three things. And that means that this this slavery, this child labour is being done not by us, but is being done for us. Because we are these customers, we are the beneficiaries of that. And that's kind of shocking and kind of unpleasant to think about. But it's also actually a real opportunity. Because what Jaskai is trying to push is if we buy differently, then that makes a difference on the ground where these things are happening. If we say we won't buy stuff produced by slave labour, then then why enslave people? Because you can't sell the stuff. Um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think that, because obviously we buy these things in large quantities across like the whole of New Zealand, well, and, and the world, but do you think that the reason that we just go about buying the cheapest or whatever is out of ignorance of what's going on or do people not really get the depth of abuse and harm that's going on or yeah I don't know what yeah what is it for you I think people just don't know mostly when I talk to people they're like oh my goodness and that's terrible and what can we do you know people it's not people don't care um I mean some people don't care that's humans for you but I think most people just don't know and it, it's very hidden. I mean, you go to the supermarket and there's a whole bunch of metal tins with nice shiny labels that, that sell tuna. And there's sometimes you'll find ones that say dolphin friendly and that might clue you up to the idea that there's some issue for dolphins to do with fish. But there's there's nothing to, to even indicate to the public that there's an issue with fish. And even the companies that we really recommend, like Sea Lord, is 
is excellent as far as we can tell with like, everything we've looked at that they've done. They're just really thoroughly checking everything. And if you look at their website really hard, you'll eventually find some of the information about that. But they're just not even telling people. And I don't, I think it's because they don't see the point. They're like, why would anyone care about that? No one knows who the problem in the first place. Right. And, and like around Easter, um, just Kai got a fair bit of attention from mainstream media and there was a bunch of things on different newspapers were sharing articles about child labour and Easter eggs and so on on Facebook. And there was there was everything that got shared. There was like a few people who were like, oh, I like the taste of slavery in my Easter eggs. But, you know, or more child labour the better or, you know, oh. and just kind of, but I just think those people haven't actually really believed what's going on. Yeah. Like, I don't think that if they actually, if they actually thought it was real, I don't, I don't think many people would be saying that. Yeah. Uh, this is like, it's quite a massive issue and you're one person. How do you go about what you do without feeling the, the weight of, you know, the plight of all these people that, mm. um, that are involved in this while, you know, you're trying to do what you can to enact change, but you're only one person. How, how do you not feel the weight of that? I mean, partly I'm I'm not just one person. I mean, I, I am one person. But, um, just kind of started out just me, but we're now a team of about 10 people, if you include everyone who does right. anything but just cool. Kai. And we've worked quite closely with Tia Funds, and I've been mentored by a chap um, in Hong Kong who um, does – he works with companies to try and get them to – remove slavery from their supply chains and he's been really helpful. So, you know, there's, I'm part of a network and, I mean, there was one young guy at church who seemed to think that I was stopping slavery all by myself and yeah. I'm like, really, <laughs> really not. Yeah. Um, I'm just doing my little bit. But I do I do find it hard. I'm a, I'm a perfectionist and a hardworking kind of person and last August, because the Justice Conference happened again last year in September, and last August I was just working so hard trying to get ready for the Justice Conference, and I can't even remember what else. There was something else going on at the same time, also just Kai related. Oh, sorry, I've, been working, I've been doing a research project for another organisation. We'd been commissioned to do some research into nuts in July, and I was just so tired. And everything just got completely out of whack and out of perspective. And we were up at my husband's parents' place in Whangarei, supposedly on holiday, and I was just working nonstop. And Martin's like, you just have to stop. And I'm like, but what will happen if I don't do this? And what will happen if I don't do that? But I've had a practice for years of taking Monday as a Sabbath day. Because Sabbath is a Jewish concept of, of resting for 24 hours from sundown to sundown. And... Most Christians who do that do that on a Sunday, but since I've been better and have been going to church, I find Sundays absolutely exhausting with all the people at church and so on. So I, I do Sunday evening to Monday evening um, as a day to spend some time with God, to rest and to do something fun. And it was a Sunday when Martin was talking. He's like, you've got to at least take your Monday off, whatever else you do. And I took my Monday off and I was reflecting and I ended up kind of writing down into my journal you know, if I don't do this, this may well happen. But if that happens, that's God's problem because I don't have enough energy to do this. And if I don't do this, then this might... And just write down a whole bunch of stuff. And it was really hard. Like, I was 
finding it really hard to even write those sentences out and to let go of it. But it was a real turning point, and it's not like that's kind of suddenly solved everything. I mean, I was doing some of that again just last week when I was suddenly getting realising just how caught up I was getting in stuff. But it's like I do feel that God has healed me so I can do this work, and I am very conscious how restricted my energy still is and how much I could do. And I'm like, well, that's God's problem. God could have healed me properly, you know, <laughs> um, and he hasn't. And so, and every time I've been praying about more energy for me, different people have gotten in touch. Like when I say the Just Kai team was about 10, um, a few of those are my friends, people from church, but the people who do the most work for Just Kai now, other than Martin and I, are people who I didn't know beforehand who've contacted me out of the blue and asked to help with things. And, you know, it's continuing to grow organically. And I I try really hard to focus on I can do what I can do and I need to faithfully do that, but then to let go. And I guess the other thing that's been really important, right at the beginning when I was trying to understand what was going on, I read a lot of stories about things that had happened to people, terrible, terrible stories of, you know, people being drugged and people being raped and people being thrown overboard and, you know, really bad stuff. And I was just having literal little nightmares. I wasn't sleeping well because I was just having nightmares all the time. And I was like, I needed to dig into it a bit to understand what I was talking about, but I... I don't read news stories now about things that happen to people basically ever. Um, you know, I read statistics and reports and, you know, that kind of thing, audits. Um, but it doesn't help anyone at all for me to have nightmares. You know, yeah. that's not going to save anyone. Um, so I really try and protect what I focus on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so there's so much else that I could talk to you about, but we need to wrap it up. So um, how do people find you, find the information that you guys provide? Yeah. So our website is justkai.org.nz. Just um, and on that, the front page has got some really brief summary information of how to get started, just a few brands to look for. And if you dig through, there's shopping guides that you can take with you when you go shopping for different sectors of the fish industry and for a few other bits and pieces. Um, our new information shows up on social media. So we are just KaiNZ on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And it would be really helpful also if anyone's particularly interested in this, if they could follow us in one of those, because when we when we contact companies and ask questions, it's really handy to say we've got lots and lots, lots of followers who will see this information. Um, just gives us a bit more clout. But also if you follow us on those things, you'll get um, you know regular updates when new information appears, which does happen from time to time, although not that often. It's, it's a long process generating new research. Oh, thank you so much for... Um the conversation today. Thank you for sharing with us about um, both your personal journey with your health, but also about Just Kai and and um, what what you're up to with that. I think it's really encouraging for me to know that something that is based around goodness and beauty and you know dealing with injustice is something that you started while you didn't actually have many hours a day to give to it. And that even now, I'm imagining it's not like a huge number of hours you can give to it in a week. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, that's really encouraging that when we want to do good in the world, it doesn't have to be 
all-consuming. Um, if people are working full-time, they don't have to quit their job to do it. Yeah. It's it's about finding what can they do with what they're passionate about, about um, you know the skills that they have, all those kind of things. So thank you for telling your story. Um, thank you for what you're doing to bring a bit of heaven down to earth. Cool, and thank you for giving me the time. I really appreciate it. Hello, hello heaven Will I hear you whisper to come near What an amazing journey and what great fruit has grown out of what looks from the outside like a life-depleting condition. I love Heather's attitude and passion for life and relationship and her concern for others. Thank you Heather for who you are and for what you do, here is a blessing for you. Heather, may your health journey be an encouragement to many, that good things are present even in the most challenging of times, that relationships can flourish, and new initiatives be birthed in the midst of what could seem hopeless. May you and your husband continue to thrive in your marriage, through whatever twists and turns await you on this adventure, and may you both know great rest, peace, and joy. May friendships continue to blossom and grow, spurring you on in your life and work, and may others be blessed because of who you are and what you bring to that connection. While it is good and right to lament not being able to have your own children, may you know that the mother in you is making a difference in the lives of children you will never meet. That children who are trapped in cycles of poverty, fed by greed and ignorance, are better off for people like you. When it all seems too much, that the weight of this is all on you, may you remember to give yourself grace, knowing that you are part of a team, and your team is part of many who are working for the same goal, and that together we can succeed. And lastly, may you know you are seen, you are heard, and you are loved. Thanks to Strawn for the music and Rangi for the karakia, Join me next time when I talk to speaker, facilitator, podcaster, pastor, author and eco-warrior James Beck. We talk about the many years James spent with Attitude, helping shape the well-being of teenagers through Aotearoa and his time at the parenting place following that. We also talk about James' passion for the environment and how that is impacting his work, his church and his spirituality. Until then, me inoi tato. E tō mātou matua i te rangi Kia tapu tō ingoa Kia tau mai tō rangatira tanga Kia mea te tau e pai ai ki runga ki te whenua Kia rite anō ki tō te rangi Humai kia mātou ai nei E taroma mātou mō tēnei rā Muro mātou hara Me mātou hoki e muru nei I o te hunga E hara ana kia mātou Aua hoki mātou e kawea Kia whakawaia E ngari whakorangia mātou I te kino Amen